Evening, everyone. Thanks to Patrick for his welcome this evening and for the opportunity to be with you. And as we've said, to, to think something about singing together and the full significance of that, even the revolutionary significance of what happens when we join together in song. It's been great to sing together this evening and it's been great to sing some psalms together this evening. Sometimes when we sing parts of the psalms, we kind of have that sense of the psalmist has nailed it, what they've said there. That's exactly what we need to hear ourselves, what we need to voice in praise to God. The bits of the psalms that we don't get, they're actually the really, really exciting and potentially useful bits because those are the bits that get to teach us so much. Those are the bits that give us an example of what it's like when the Word of God gets deep down into someone and we get to practice giving voice to that so that the Word of God gets deeper down into us. Well, this evening I wanted to take us to Psalm 96, and I will read that for us. And as we hear this, we remember that it is God's Word to us. Psalm 96. O oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised he is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Amen. We thank God for this reading from his word. Well, if you can see that psalm in front of you, you'll see that it is one which is full of hope and joy and great confidence. Just look at some of the verses in it. Verse 1, to begin with, the whole of the earth is called to sing praise. On to verse 7, 
all the families of all the nations of this world are called to holy fear and to reverent worship. In verse, as we move on to 11, all of creation rejoices, rejoices on the land and the sea and up in the heavens. And then finally in verse 12, even the very trees are singing with joy. So it's a psalm full of hope, full of joy and confidence. Now let's take a reality check for a moment. Look around us on a winter's day like today. The trees with their bare branches, denuded of all their foliage. You look at them and you say, they're not exactly in song today. There might be still in November, just enough of autumn left so that we hear something almost like a whisper of praise coming from the trees. But you'd look out at them and you'd say, the trees are never in full joyful voice of praise. And what about the nations? The nations which in this psalm are described as praising God in joyful song. Drive through the streets of Belfast today and this doesn't look like a city where God is enjoyed. This psalm might call all the peoples of the earth to sing, but we certainly don't hear that yet. Instead of voices united together in harmonious praise of Almighty God, instead of that, when we look around and when we listen, there is just a jarring discord. There is, we might say, personal disharmony because people aren't on the same page. It's as if, as we look out on all the masses of people, they're all there, but they're singing out of different hymn books. And all that you hear from it is just one glaring cacophony. If you think about this psalm for a moment, and you look at it, and then you look at our world, this psalm, at first glance, does not seem to describe the world as we know it. And thinking about that, we might be left wondering to ourselves, is all of this just wishful thinking? Is this something that we're trying to persuade ourselves of in the hope that in some way it might be comforting to us? Can you take the words of Psalm 96 and can you sing them with real integrity? Are these words that you can sing with real confidence? All too often, we hardly feel like singing because it appears as if things in this world are not really firmly established in the way that the psalmist describes it. We can look at our world and we can feel as if everything is falling apart. Look around, look at our circumstances, look inside, look into our hearts and see our sin. We can very easily conclude there's far more reason for silence than there is for song. And that's why we need the commands of this psalm. That's why we need the commands of the opening verses, because they're not once, 
nor twice, but three times over, we are told, no, we're actually commanded to praise God. And I say right at the beginning in those opening verses, that's something that we are commanded to do because these commands are made to the people of God. We're told to come and to sing to the Lord a new song. We are to bless his great name and we're to tell his salvation not just once, but day after day we are to proclaim it. We are to declare his glorious works among the nations. And of course, that begins with his marvelous works in the creation of this world. And then it climaxes with the glory of God redeeming his people and then restoring and perfecting this broken creation. Let's look at some of the verses in a little more detail just to see if we can pick out some of the things that are important for us to note. And the first one, coming at the beginning of the psalm, in one sense, you might think is perhaps almost too obvious to even say, but it's worth pointing out that we are told to sing. In a sense, this couldn't be any more straightforward. The Word of God says to us, to the people of God, you are to raise your voices in song. We're to actually sing. So this isn't something that we should pass over simply as a metaphor. This is a straightforward command. We are to sing praise to God. And that's interesting, isn't it? Because it's not as if the psalmist tells us simply, there are certain truths that you ought to acknowledge about who God is. It's not as if we're given a form, and on the form it lists all the things that faithful believers are supposed to be committed to and put their trust in, and you can go down the form, down the list, and check all the boxes, ticking them off one by one to say, yep, those are things that I believe. For the psalmist here, admitting the truth is necessary, but in and of itself, it is insufficient. We don't just have to believe the truth. The command here is to sing the truth. We're to sing it. Because simply knowing something is not the same as rejoicing in it and enjoying it in all its fullness. But when you sing, then those things can really start to happen. When you sing, you are saying that something is beautiful and splendid, magnificent and truly amazing. We're not just to tick the boxes that we believe all these things. We are to turn it into praise. We're to turn it into song. You see, there really is something about the very act of singing, which is so significant and so revolutionary. Because when we sing, our minds and our hearts and our very bodies are joined together in one act. 
It's not just the sort of mental side of things where we go down and tick the lists. It's not even the side that, you know, we believe these things and our heart really feels joy over them. Our whole bodies are involved in the process as well, as we have to draw air into our lungs and then sing it out as loud as we can to say, these things which I understand with my mind and which I believe in my heart, with my whole body, I want to declare that these things are magnificent and splendid and beautiful. When we praise, we praise God with all that we are. We praise him with heart and soul and mind and strength. We are straightforwardly, but very significantly to sing. And notice as well, if you look at the details in Psalm 96 here, that our song is supposed to be something which is profoundly God-centered. We are to bless his name and to declare his marvelous works. In other words, in our worship, we should be singing about who God is and about what it is that he has done for us. We're to sing songs which are full of the significance of who God is and what he's done. And then continuing with just some of these little details, notice how it is that, first of all, we are to sing to the Lord. So catch the direction there, because in the first instance, when we gather together and when we lift our voices in prayers, the first orientation of what we do is vertical. In our prayers, we're not simply singing things about God, about who he is and about what he's done. We are actually addressing him in our prayers. We are singing to him. We are blessing his name. Blessing his name simply means that we are saying good things about his great name. So first of all, it's vertical. Then the psalmist also tells us that it's horizontal. We sing to God and we also declare these things among the nations. It's repeated. We declare this to all the peoples, telling them of his marvelous works of salvation. So again, the application there is pretty straightforward to us. In our singing, there needs to be both a vertical and a horizontal element to it. We sing to God, and in a very real and important sense, we're also singing to one another. Put it differently, um, in our worship, we are to love God, with heart, mind, soul, and strength. And we're also to love our neighbors as ourselves as we sing to one another and declare the truth to one another in song. And those two orientations, singing to God and singing to one another, they're not at all at odds with one another. If we want to make it memorable, we might say that in our congregational singing, there is both adoration and advertising. Adoration as we sing to God, 
and then advertising as we declare his truth to one another and then on out into the world. When we gather together for worship and when we lift our voices, it's not as if we come in here in order to retreat from the world. Instead, what we do here is an integral part of our witness to the world. And some of this has got really easy but concrete application to us, but application that I think sometimes is missed. If in our prayers, this vertical and horizontal element, if they're both important, well then it makes sense that when we meet together here this evening, that the lights are turned on in the way that they are. You've maybe seen it in some churches, when you come together for worship, all the lights are up on the stage, and it's as if the lights in the rest of the building, they are dimmed. When the lights are on like this, it's not just the front that's lit up, the whole gathering is illuminated, and that really helps us as we sing to one another in song. And so dare I say it, even sometimes, if it's not your practice at the moment, sometimes when we're singing praise together, you probably actually ought to just not look at the screen where the words are projected for us. You ought to maybe just turn to the side and glance at other people. Let them see the fact that you are engaged in adoration, but also advertising, saying to one another, these are great things. These are things which move mind and heart and even my very body in praise to God. Here's another practical application from all of this. It's great, like is what happened this evening, when we're gathered together here, that we can actually hear the congregation sing together. Now again, you might have been to other places where sometimes the music is performed in such a way that you really can hardly even hear yourself sing, let alone the people standing beside you. And if that's what happens, the people are actually really missing out on something which is quite significant. The Apostle Paul said in that in our prayers, Ephesians 5.19, we are to speak to one another, we're to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And if the music is at such a volume where we can't hear that, well, then we miss out on the blessing that's involved in doing it. We don't want the music to be done in such a way that it doesn't really matter whether or not you sing. We don't want the music to be done in such a way that, as sometimes happens, you can kind of sing along to bits of it, but it doesn't really matter if you're singing the rest of it. We want something which means we can adore God together and then advertise these truths to one another as we meet together. So, we've got this threefold command. We are to sing. We're to declare God's greatness. We're to tell of these things. We are to bless his great name. Why do we need to be told to do that? Why do we actually need to be given this command to sing to the Lord, to praise him, to proclaim his salvation daily, and to declare his mighty works among the nations? 
Why do we need the command in the very first place? Well, for me to try to answer that, try to follow the logic through in verses 4 to 6, because those verses give us the answer. They explain why we're given this threefold command. And there we read that God alone is greatly to be feared, and he is to be feared above all the so-called gods of this world. Verse 5 goes one step further. It tells us that the idols of the world are worthless. And that word translated worthless idols is in the language that the psalm was written in, originally simply one word, a word which joins together the word not and the word God. So it's a perfectly good translation to describe these things as worthless idols. But one other scholar's translation of on gods, I think is even better. All the gods of the peoples are on gods. They are ineffective. They are worthless. They are empty. They are nothings. So back to the question. Why is it that we need to be told to sing praise to God? Well, the answer that we get in those verses is because of what our constant problem is, even a constant issue for us as Christian believers. We are always prone to idolatry. We face the temptation to refashion God in our own likeness. We assume, we presume that God is like us. Idolatry is making ourselves the definition of God, forgetting that he is altogether far and beyond even our imaginations, too wonderful to be captured and contained in our words. Why are we silent? Why do we need this command to sing? Well, it is because of our idolatry. That is one of the most profound explanations of why we do not sing praise to God in the way that we ought to. Our idols, our on-gods, are simply the work of our hands. That's God is the one who made the very heavens. And when we think about our idols, we think that our idols will give us the things described in verse 6. Do you see that? Splendor, majesty, strength, and beauty. Aren't those the things that all of us really long for in our lives? Splendor, majesty, beauty, and strength. And in our sin, we ascribe those things to our idols. And we need the reminder that those things are actually only found in God's sanctuary. Idols cannot save us because as verse 2 says, salvation belongs to God. And that's why we are to sing this new song mentioned in verse 1. 
You see that command, sing to the Lord a new song, I don't think in the first instance is a command to go out and to write new songs. It's not as if the psalmist comes to us saying, I've got this new song here, and I really hope that you'll enjoy singing it with me. That's not what he's thinking about. The point that he's making is that all the earth has been singing the same old songs, just like those empty jingles. You know the kind of jingles that get stuck in your heads? It's no song at all, but somehow or other it captures our minds. You see, with the idols of this world, there is no true and lasting joy. With the idols of this world, there is nothing to sing about apart from the old song. And the old song is just like a stuck record, crackling round and round again, stuck in the same old groove. At the beginning of the psalm, the psalmist says to us, leave the old songs behind and now ascribe to God the glory that is his alone. Why do we need to be commanded to sing? Because our hearts are always prone to idolatry. Singing really was one of the great rediscoveries of the Reformation 500 years ago. If you'd been coming to church before that, you'd have been coming along and the thought of the whole congregation engaging in song together would have been the last thing that you would have had in your minds. It simply didn't happen. All the singing that took place in church, if it happened, was handled by the priest and the choir at the front. The people who came along for worship They didn't expect to lift their voices in praise at all. One of the great rediscoveries of that time was the very practice of congregational song, the people of God lifting their voices in praise. It was one of the great revolutions which took place 500 years ago. Let's move things to a close as we see how this psalm itself draws to a climax. Because in this psalm, as the truths about who God is and what he's done, as those truths work deeper and deeper down into the heart of the psalmist and the people singing this psalm, well, then in turn, they start to spill out and go further and further out from the psalmist who's singing it. Each unit of the psalm calls more and more people to join in. So in the first Part of the psalm, the command is to the people of God. Israel is to sing. And then in the second unit, which begins in verse 7, there, it's just like the first one, but it goes out further. There in verses 7 to 9, it's all the peoples and nations of this world. It's something which is really expansive and all-embracing and far-reaching. All the different people that we've been thinking about praying for this evening and thinking about the work of the gospel too, it's to go out to them. The boundaries, they are pushed further and further out. When they didn't know the Lord... They ascribed glory and strength to their idols. But in verse 10, as the nations learn that the Lord reigns, well, they come and they understand that true glory belongs to God alone. And so they ascribe to him all that is rightfully his. 
And look at the great promise of the gospel in verses 8 to 9. The nations, they're invited to come into God's courts, to come right into the sanctuary, and there they offer a sacrifice of praise. So the command to sing to the people of God, then out to the nations, and then in the final unit, well, it addresses the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything that fills it. The whole creation is invited to join in and rejoice before God. Look at the details of it. They're amazing. The whole of creation is portrayed as something like a great congregation of worshippers. There is this mighty thundering bass of the great oceans. And then as well as that, there's the polyphony of the fields and the forests, joining in, praising God, and then above it all, this kind of sparkling descant of the very stars of the heavens, all united together to praise God. Look at the way that it ends in verse 13. Because there it tells us why this great cosmic choir is praising God. And it's somewhat surprising. It might not be the thing that we would think about writing as something to sing about. But again, the great thing about the Psalms is that they teach us what you sing and what you pray and what you think when the Word of God gets deep down into you. Why is all the earth rejoicing? Well, the answer of verse 13 is that God is coming to judge. That really is the answer. We get told that twice. Why do they praise? Well, because God is coming as judge. Now, why would that be good news? Why would that be a reason for creation to praise God? Why would the fact that God is returning to judge mean that even the trees would be singing for joy? Well, the answer is that the Lord reigns and God is coming to put all things right. He's coming to restore his creation, to restore justice, to set things straight. We think to ourselves, how would we ever endure that? How could the return of God to put everything right ever be a cause of good news and celebration for me? What hope is there for us if there is going to be a judgment day? Well, of course, the answer to that is that God's most marvelous deed, the thing worth singing about more than anything else is worth singing about, is God's gift in sending Jesus Christ to this earth, going to the cross, and taking the judgment that we deserve. That surely is the most marvelous of all God's mighty deeds, something that the psalmist looked forward to, and which we now look back to. The guarantee that everything will be put right in this broken world is the mighty resurrection of Jesus Christ, risen to reign. So have done with the on-gods. And this evening, 
renew your commitment or commit yourself for the first time to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Commit yourself to ascribe glory to God alone. And when you meet together in this place, to raise the rafters, as it were, because God reigns. Song changes us. It gets the word of God deep down into us. And it doesn't just change us, it also changes the world. And if you don't believe that, go and ask any of the people who come from the Baltic states. Lots of them have come to Northern Ireland in recent years, people from Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. When they found their freedom from Soviet tyranny in the years between 1987 and 1991, the whole set of events was called the Singing Revolution. Hundreds of thousands of people came together to sing and it played a vital role in the overthrow of communism. Singing the praises of God together week by week can lead to an even more fundamental and long-lasting revolution. We sing to ourselves, we sing to the world, we invite the nations to join the song, knowing that history itself is going to end with song. All the nations of the earth will sing. The oceans will resound in praise. The fields and the trees of the forest will sing for joy. The very heavens will be glad. As such, singing together, it is our future. What we do when we meet together to sing is in many ways choir practice for eternity. Because at the end of history, the conquering lamb will be praised in loud song by great multitudes. Our singing now is something which connects us to the future. It gives us a glimpse. We hear a foretaste of that time when people from every tribe and tongue and nation will praise God in a thunderous roar that we can scarcely now even imagine. Thank you for listening to this Castlereagh Fellowship podcast. For more podcasts, Bible teaching videos, and to see what's going on at the church, please visit our website, castlereaghfellowship.com. God bless.